0: Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host,
1: Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's tonight's topic? Eric, tonight is... East Cavalry Field, Part 2. We're now going to be into the afternoon of July 3rd, 1863. In Part 1, we introduced a lot of the combatants. We introduced you to David M. Gregg, George Custer, Jeb Stewart, we already knew Wade Hampton from prior episodes, Vincent, Claw, Hammer, Witcher. We pretty much brought both sides, Union and Confederate, onto East Cavalry Field, which is a small patch of farmland. About three miles east of Gettysburg, defended along the Hanover Road side by the Union under Generals Greg and Custer, while General Stewart approached from the York Pike side of the field and positioned himself on Cress Ridge opposite the John and Sarah Rummel farm. So we've set the stage, and today we are going to get into the combat the aftermath, and a little bit of the historiography and the legacy of East Cavalry Field. So East Cavalry Field, part two, what I always like to call a spectacular clash of cavalry talent here on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Eric, before we go there, do we have any housekeeping or should we just talk about where the listeners can find us? First, as we've been doing this season, should note that
0: Jim and I are speaking only for ourselves.
1: Yes, I forgot the disclaimer. I'm yeah, sorry. We, we have
0: to do we have to do the disclaimer so we don't get into trouble with the higher-ups. But uh, we just note that Jim and I are speaking for ourselves. Even though we are licensed Battlefield Guides here at Gettysburg, we are not speaking for any organization we are a part of. I am speaking for myself. Jim is speaking for himself. So in case there's any question about that, it's all nicely cleared up there. And of course, I should note that our disclaimer written by legal advisor, Daniel
1: Sickles. Mm -hmm. Call Daniel Edgar Sickles for all of your legal needs. So
0: before we get into
1: social media
0: and housekeeping, Jim, should we talk about tonight's sponsors?
1: Yeah, we've got two sponsors again. And once again, we are recording from Getty's Gear at 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village across from the tour center. Now, as listeners of the program undoubtedly know by now, Gettys Gears' philosophy is simple, to produce high-quality products— at reasonable prices with exceptional customer service. And they've got all kinds of products as we talk about. Our particular favorite is dog treats, even though I don't own a dog, but for the dog in your life, they have dog treats, but cigar accessories, coffee, all kinds of Gettysburg gear as the name would imply. So come visit them again, 777 Baltimore Street, or you can give them a call at 717 334 3747 or you can reach them via email at info at gettysgear.com that's gettysgear history with a sense of style we also have a patron listener Sponsor, And again, we would like to thank our friend and colleague, fellow licensed battlefield guide, Rick Schrader. Rick has been a guide since 2016, and he wears badge number 166. Rick Schrader is a retired orthopedic surgeon who has just relocated to the Gettysburg area from Johnstown, PA. I've had the pleasure of working with Rick on the field several times in recent years, and he's a uh, not only a great colleague and a great historian, but just an all-around good guy. Rick wants to uh, give a shout-out to all of our fellow guides who have been working to keep visitors safe and each other safe through these tough COVID times. So Eric and I would like to thank Licensed Battlefield Guide Rick Schrader for co-sponsoring once again this episode, and we're going to see Rick coming up again on a uh, future episode uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later.
0: So we don't really have very much in terms of housekeeping. First of all, Jim,
1: how do you like the intro music we've been going with lately? I love the intro music. Now, you know, of course, obviously the listeners have just heard the intro music as we cut into this installment. I thought it was an inspired choice. Now, of course, when you hear it, you first think of two thousand and one Space Odyssey, with, with the music was was used heavily in. But Eric, doesn't it that music have a deeper meaning on a personal pop culture level to you and I? Well, see, for me, I don't think two thousand and one
0: Space Odyssey when I hear that. I think well, Nature Boy Ric Flair. That's where that's what I think first. Exactly. Uh, I would put actually maybe two thousand and one Space Odyssey number three because actually number after Flair, I'm thinking Elvis's intro. So, I yeah, I
1: didn't know the Elvis reference. So. Yeah,
0: Elvis used that as his intro. Young and Elvis? He goes in. Young Elvis? Oh, uh, this Elvis. is like 70s Elvis. The good Elvis. Vegas Elvis. Yeah, okay, the good one. all right.
1: All right. Yeah. So obviously uh, we selected this particular piece primarily because it was Ric Flair's intro ring music. And man, I just think for us an inspired, an inspired choice. It brings a lump to my throat listening to it. And it really just gets me fired up to podcast whenever I hear that music.
0: So we just wanted to let people know in case they're wondering what the heck are they doing with that song? Produ- Why?
1: Production yeah. values We're up in the production values in season three. You
0: know, we started as this hard Scrabble podcast coming from a bar, and
1: here we are now in our very own studio. You know, all joking aside, we've done, up to this point, we've done uh, Iverson two-parter, we've done Batchelder two-parter, we did East Calvary Field part one. I've been really happy with the way season three has been coming along. I, th- I really do think this has been our, some of our best work so far. Oh, absolutely. We were
0: not professionals at this before. We were battlefield guides. That's what we were. And so, you know, it's a learning process for us, but I think we are certainly coming into our own in this season, and I've been very pleased with it as well. And I think a lot of listener feedback has suggested that as well. So if you would like to give us feedback on the show, easiest way to do that is find us on social media, on Facebook at The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod. On Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out, follow us, interact. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. As we say every episode, the reviews matter. Thank you to everybody that has taken the time to give a review. And also, if you haven't yet, we hope you'll consider giving one on the podcast platform of your choice. Also, if you would like to donate to the show financially, you can do so in a couple of ways. One is through PayPal, and you can do that at paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Or you can give a monthly recurring donation of a couple bucks or so on Patreon. And you can find that at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg Podcast. So with that, that's all I have. So I think let's get into East Cavalry Field.
1: Great. All right. So again, we left off. It's It was about 12 o'clock noon, give or take. Stuart and his invincibles tired, ragged, worn out, arrived on Ridge. Now their approach had been spotted both by skirmishers sent out by the sagacious General Custer, but also by signal officers on East Cemetery Hill. And I love that reference because I think we, we may have said this before, but here we are July 3rd, Oliver Howard making himself useful on July 3rd. How awesome is that? And we're recording on Cemetery Hill. Good ground? Very good ground. Okay, so Confederate positions on Crest Ridge are not nearly as well documented as the Union positions. You can go into your favorite East Cavalry Field book and dog on it. There's so many of them. Or you go into Phil Leno's Gettysburg Campaign Atlas, and you'll often see the Confederate positions portrayed slightly differently in different books. But Stewart reported that he had moved his command secretly through the woods to a position. Quote, and hoped to effect a surprise upon the enemy's rear. But Hampton and Fitz Lee's brigades, which had been ordered to follow me, unfortunately debouched into the open ground, disclosing the movement and causing a corresponding movement of a large force of the enemy's cavalry. Kind of a, not a cool move, in my estimation, on Stewart's part to kind of blame Hampton and Lee for sort of, you know, getting spotted. Not cool, in my opinion, and I think rather unjust by General Stewart. What we know Stewart does do when he gets out there, though, and this has always been a little source of mystery and controversy, something that has long puzzled historians, was that, you know, if Stewart was hoping for any element of surprise, he instead fires off some artillery when he gets out there and this has always been sort of proposed as Stuart sending a signal shot to robert e lee letting lee know that Stuart is in position on Cress ridge and you know begin Pickett's charge because now Stuart is ready to um, get into the back the rear of the enemy army so to speak i'm gonna pause for a minute obviously we're gonna have some strong opinions about this there's a uh, good body of historical evidence against this eric i'll start with you what do you think signal shot or is that all bs my
0: personal feeling is the signal shots are really trying to get a sense of where Union troopers are in their front. Mm-hmm. The idea is that if we fire this off, we might have some horses move. We might have some some noise coming out. It's a standard practice in 19th century battlefield to try to feel for the enemy if you can't get directly out there.
1: And Stuart's got an example of that on his own resume. You know, we often point out the Battle of Chantilly, September 1862. He basically did the same thing.
0: So it isn't uncommon. Now, I think where we get into some of the problematic interpretations is the timing this happens. I think it's just happenstance. This is happening about the same time, just preceding the cannonade on July 3rd. But I don't think it's any signal to note coordination yeah. or let someone know, hey, I'm in where I need to be. I think really a lot of it is if we look at what Stuart's purpose is out there on July 3rd, one, it's to protect the flank of the army in Northern Virginia. And also I think it's to cause as much of a disruption as you can out there. But this just causing a disruption does not necessarily mean that you're going to be coming into the rear of the broken Union army as Lee's troops push through on Cemetery Ridge. I think it's, that's a lot to ask for. And also keep in mind to hear that cannon Mm -hmm. shot where it is at Lee's headquarters. I don't know. It just does not add up for me. But that has not stopped historians from running with this.
1: No, it hasn't stopped people from running with it. And you're right. The distance from Stewart to Lee at that point in time is somewhere in the vicinity of about four miles away. And we're not talking four miles of quiet, open countryside. There's a heck of a lot going on. Between Stuart and Lee. Yeah, let me get, just read a couple of historical accounts to put this into some context. Henry McClellan, Stuart's staffer, wrote that while carefully concealing Jenkins and Chambliss's brigades from view, Stuart pushed one of Griffin's guns to the edge of the woods and fired a number of random shots in different directions, himself giving orders to the guns. Now, McClellan goes on to say, I have been somewhat perplexed to account for Stewart's conduct in firing these shots, but I suppose that they may have been a prearranged signal by which he was to notify General Lee that he had gained a favorable position. Or, finding that none of the enemy were within sight, he may have desired to satisfy himself whether the Federal Cavalry was in his immediate vicinity before leaving the strong position he then held. Now, remember, folks, we touched on this in part one. Stewart, at least for a little while on July 2nd, observed some of the action on Brinkerhoff Ridge. So Stewart is not getting out there and going, oh, my heavens, are there enemy troops out here? But he is looking to try to find out who's out there. There's actually a post-war account where Pennington, who's on the Union side, actually related a post-war conversation with McClellan. And according to Pennington via McClellan, quote, Stewart looked in every direction but could find no sign of federal troops. So he ordered a gun out and fired it in different directions in hopes of getting an echo or a reply from one of our guns and then through his glass could locate the smoke. I think that's what's going on. It's basically like a recon by fire.
0: And one of the interesting points about that, if we look at the historiography of how does this joint coordinated action develop, It's where historians and students of the battle have read one part of McClellan's memoir. And they'll say, you know, okay, well, there it is. He's a staff member. But they never follow up the second part. Right. He never says that is the definitive reason why. It's one of two reasons he gives. And I think even if it's to let Lee know that Stewart is in a favorable position, That does not necessarily mean that Stewart is a part of the attack plan on July 3rd. It just means he's where he needs to be.
1: Well, you're right. You're right. And that's, again, historians often cutting and parsing a lot of these accounts, because not only did McClellan give two possible reasons, but he also started that sentence with, But I suppose, yes, I suppose means, geez, you know, I'm not really even sure, but maybe I think and historians, as you said, always cut this stuff out. And when you look at Lee's report,
0: you look at Stewart's report, you even look at Richard Ewell's report. There's nothing to suggest that there is coordination there. Longstreet doesn't talk about it. You know, Mm. any of these individuals that would have been associated with this, you know, Lee planning the assault. Longstreet executing it. Certainly, Yule would have to be informed if Stuart's going to be doing some things on his flank. Stuart doesn't mention it. So, if no one mentions it, it's hard for me to believe that this is a part of this, that nobody thought to put this down in a post-war memoir. Nobody thought to put this down in a letter. Nobody thought to put this down in their report. That seems like a big omission if it is true.
1: Yeah, and we should come back to that in the historiography segment because there have been conspiracy-minded individuals who have sort of written this up like Stuart is on a secret, you know, Navy SEAL, Black Ops kind of mission and that, you know, all the couriers undoubtedly ate the, ate the evidence, ate the messages so that Stuart... Stewart would not be embarrassed, you know, if this thing were to fall apart. So we should come back to that in the uh Oh, absolutely. I do case. love a good
0: conspiracy. Who doesn't love a good cons- because conspiracy? Because remember, you don't
1: have to be paranoid for them to be out to get you. <laughs> we missed a uh, key segment in part one that I think would probably fit in well here. Because, um, you know, we've talked about now, obviously, on the Union side of the field, Greg and Custer are aware of the Confederate presence and remember before it was kind of confusing but Greg had been out on the Hanover Road July 2nd Greg says at 10 p.m. on the 2nd he was pulled back to the Pike the morning of the 3rd Custer is detached from Kilpatrick to go out there but then Custer gets orders to go back to Kilpatrick Greg and McIntosh are going to kind of come out there and replace him but there's a great conversation that I think uh, would, would probably fit in well here now there's various accounts of how the exchange happened but Eric, if it didn't happen this way, it should have, because as the story goes, Custer basically says to General Greg, you know, General, I got to go, but you're going to have a big fight on your hands. And Greg says, I would like to have the assistance of your brigade, to which Custer replied, if you give me an order to remain, I will be only happy to do it. And Greg gave the order to Custer to remain. And Custer stayed. So, you know, as we said before, we're not taking away from Greg at all because he is clearly the guy who realized the value of this position. But Custer remaining with his 1,900 guys Pennington's battery and then Randall's battery is going to come in shortly thereafter is going to significantly add to Greg's firepower. But I just wanted to kind of highlight that exchange between Greg and Custer, because I think it's one of the best examples you have here at the Battle of Gettysburg of officers far away from headquarters. You know, you can't basically send a message to Meade and get an instantaneous reply back. But it's a great example, I think, of Custer and Greg working together, Eric partnering, as you will, to basically show some joint initiative and agree to stay. Now, that doesn't help Kilpatrick out on the other end of the line, (laughs) but that's, you know, for another time.
0: And if anything, it shows what Alfred Pleasanton wants his commanders to do, show initiative. Don't wait to get the order from headquarters. You know, make the decision. And we look at other points in the battle where you would need joint cooperation. Think about some of the orders that Hancock gives to Caldwell and others. You know, don't listen to anything that Sickles says. Oh, that's know. awful. You know, I mean, that's so. We're looking at times where they are not working as a well-oiled machine here these are two commanders that really Greg has no authority to keep Custer there nope. and Custer actually has orders
1: to go somewhere to go else. do
0: something else i think what they saw was that the circumstances dictated custer needing to stay there and how often do we see sometimes we go you know what sorry those are my orders that's what i'm going to do
1: and they use that almost as an excuse to take responsibility to take initiative and it's custer's personality coming to the forefront here george armstrong custer loves a good fight and you can say whatever you want about the man or his career but he is not going to ride away from a good fight and he stays And as we mentioned
0: in the previous episode, I think they probably feel they've got a little bit of cover that if it kind of hits the fan a little bit on this, Pleasanton is a fan of Custer. Pleasanton's a fan of Greg. They're going to have some help if things got a little dicey for him. I don't think there's the worry that this could end my career for doing this. yeah, And also, they're doing what is the right thing at this moment.
1: Well, that's where I was going to go. I mean, certainly the opposite scenario is true, too. I mean, if you pulled back, you left the approaches to the Union rear open when the enemy cavalry was clearly on the field and approaching the field, you would probably have something to answer for later. So, yeah, I think we agree. Good call. Good call. Good call all the way around from Greg and Custer. High five, man. And what we're seeing is how it's supposed to work.
0: Greg is seeing the bigger picture, and he's utilizing Custer to achieve the goals that he has been tasked with. That is how a division commander is supposed to work. That's how a brigade commander is supposed to work. We'll get into this a little bit later as we talk about how the fighting develops, because a lot of the attention does go to Custer. But this is taking nothing away from Greg, because ultimately, had it not been for Greg, Custer would not be where he is. We have to give Greg a lot of credit for that.
1: And we do give Greg a lot of credit for that. Actually, modern Gettysburg historiography, in my opinion, has actually flipped 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And look, guys, I'm not talking about like Tucker-type books. You know, if you see a book on your shelf that says Custer versus Stewart, the battle that saved the Union, put it down. Don't even bother picking that up. But I'm talking about serious Serious Gettysburg studies today almost universally do give credit where credit is due to Greg. And I think the problem is because Custer has become a dirty word to a lot of people, now the pendulum is swung in the direction of oh, Custer was just along for the ride. What, you know, "Ah, Greg did did all the thinking out there for dumb old Custer. That may or may not be true, but as we've alluded to a couple of times, both in part one and part two, when the action starts here, there's going to be one Brigade more heavily engaged than the others. And my God, that's going to be the Wolverines from Michigan.
0: And really, two points for me on this. I call it the Longstreet principle when you mentioned the pendulum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think about for so long a lot of history was kind of anti-Longstreet. Yeah. It begins to shift back where Longstreet does no wrong. And unfortunately. Each extreme is a bad interpretation. Well, the truth is really somewhere yeah. in the
1: middle there. It, the truth always is in the middle. I mean, Mead is part of that right now. You know, for years you didn't want to give Mead credit for the victory. Now criticize George Mead. Oh, uh, you better have your fighting gear on because a lot of people are going to dogpile on you for that. Why don't we chalk this up to a very special episode in the future? You know, guys that the pendulum is swung on. I think that would be great. I like that. You know, of maybe
0: that would be a great guide round. Roundtable episode, maybe.
1: (laughs) Who knows? Maybe. If our friends are nice to us, we'll invite them back. And my
0: second point to this is using an example of, say, watching a football game, you have the coach call the play, Mm -hmm. but you got to have somebody to execute the play. You can have the best play drawn up in the world, but if the running back does not go where he needs to go, the play is blown up. You know, the quarterback doesn't get the ball where he needs it to be. So Mm. look at this almost as Greg is calling up the play. Custer's job is to execute it. You have to have the right play called and you have to have the right execution to have success. And that's what we're going to see on July 3rd between Greg and Custer.
1: Yeah. The other thing that the terrain plays in the favor of that sort of scenario, too. Now, George Custer. I think we mentioned this in part one, but Custer later wrote that the ground itself was very unfavorable for cavalry operations. And look, what I think he's talking about is he's talking about fences, he's talking about all the farms that are out there. You know, we always talk about the John and Sarah Rummel farm, but there's actually a lot more farms out in the general vicinity than that. Cress Run, Little Run, so you've got these little bodies of water out there. But from Greg's perspective along the Hanover Road, from Stewart's perspective along Crest Ridge, the advantage these guys have, you know, as the play callers is basically you've got wide open planes in front of you and they can see the field. They can see a lot of the action going on. Now I have, walked. I will tell you, I have walked literally every foot of ground on East Cavalry Field uh, including many places that are generally not open to the public. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of peaks and dips and swales and things like that where you can hide small bodies of troops. But in general, you've got a wide open plain here in these two armies, almost in Napoleonic fashion, kind of facing off against each other, which is going to tie into Stuart's tactics, which I'll go into next unless you got something you want to add there. Because I I know
0: you're a Napoleon guy. Yeah, I would just say too that what we're looking at is the Union forces have a better sense of the terrain out there than the Confederates do. You you think about the day before, they're already in that area moving back and forth in the Brinkerhoff Ridge action. So Greg, I think, has a better sense of the terrain than Stewart does. A lot of Stewart's actions on July 3rd, as we're going to see, are really predicated on figuring out, okay, where exactly is the enemy? What is their strength? What is their positioning? These are all things that if Stewart had had a better sense of the terrain, he would have probably had a better answer for that. Not only that, the Union Army has good avenues of approach. They have good lines of sight, things that you would want on a battlefield that we're going to see coming up.
1: Well, the other thing too, though, that I would add, and this will tie into Stewart's tactics, you know, Greg has a quote that he uses later on that I think summarizes it well. Stewart's job is to do. Greg's job is to hold. And as we know on pretty much any of these Civil War battles or individual actions, it is easier to play defense than offense. So Stewart, for his part, let's go to Stewart's report. And Stewart says, quote, my plan was to employ the enemy in front with sharpshooters and move a command of cavalry upon their left flank from the position held by me. Now, like other parts of the battlefield, East Cavalry Field is not studied as heavily as other parts of the field. I take probably about a half dozen tours out there every year, primarily because people know I'm a Custer enthusiast and things like that. Big groups, small groups kind of thing. So it's kind of not to get off topic, but it's kind of unfair because I see on social media a lot. Oh, the guides don't go out to East Cavalry Field. Yes, some of us do. Mm -hmm. Some of us are very interested in the topic, but I digress. So the way I always explain it on the field is think of this battle in phases. Phase one is essentially going to be dismounted action skirmishing near the John and Sarah Romo farm. So, Custer, having committed to staying, pushes out the 6th Michigan, while Greg and McIntosh also push out elements of the 3rd Pennsylvania and the 1st New Jersey, basically push them forward as dismounted skirmishers, moving them out towards the Rummel Farm. And the union's going to take up a skirmish position, basically running along Little's Run and the Rummel Farm Lane, really kind of protecting the best they can approach to the left side of Gregg's position or the hanover road meanwhile other elements of mcintosh's brigade again other squadrons in the third pennsylvania specifically and some of the first maryland they're going to be pushed up kind of along the low dutch road kind of beyond beyond and behind the right of this union skirmish line so you've got a skirmish line protecting the union left you've got Dismounted cavalry along the Low Dutch Road trying to protect approaches from the right. Stewart, in the meantime, is going to push dismounted skirmishers of his own under our pal, Vincent Clawhammer Witcher, out to the John and Sarah Rummel farm. Eric, I'm going to pause.
0: What I think is interesting here is while we consider this action in most people's mind, if you would say, okay, Imagine the fight in East Cavalry Field. What does their mind generally go to? It's these large, grand charges. Yeah. But a bulk of this fighting is actually dismounted, which is really part and parcel of how Civil War Cavalry is operating by this point. Um, they're less cavalry and almost more mounted infantry, sometimes is how they're being used on a battlefield. What I think is interesting with Greg's deployments is sometimes we hear the, the idea of being on the defense. We think that it's somehow being passive mm-hmm. and it's really not a good defense imposes your will on your opponent. And what we're seeing is that he is putting a strong protection on each flank, which logically if Stuart's having a hard time going around each flank You then try to move more to the middle, which is then funneling the enemy where you want them to be. So I think it's a very interesting deployment by Greg and what he's trying to do, that it's not just this passive we're trying to hold, but he is trying to impose what he wants on Stuart. He wants to put Stuart in a position where Stewart does not have the advantage compared to what Greg
1: will have. You can be tactically offensive for a strategic defense. And again, this is where though Custer's Wolverines are going to come in handy, because if they don't stay, Greg doesn't have enough men to do all this stuff. I mean, as we said before, MacIntosh's brigade with a couple regiments detached is probably at about 900 guys. So this is where the Wolverines are going to come into play. So the skirmish action kind of focuses in and around the John and Sarah Rummel farm. And I just want to talk about that. Real quick for a second here because the Rummel farm is still on the field today. It is privately owned, so you cannot just walk up to the front door anymore, or or, you know, kind of like you used to in the past. But it's probably the most notable home or farm still on the field. So, just a little bit of background John and Sarah Rummel, they bought approximately 168 acres in 1845 and they built structures over the next 18 years or so. Now, today, there is a large barn on the site which by all accounts does date back to the battle and in fact has battle damage in it that's going to occur in large part because witcher's men are initially going to take up a position in the Rummel barn and in and around the house so you're gonna have these dismounted Confederate skirmishers basically you know knocking out holes in the wall of the uh, Rummel barn and initially using that as a position for their skirmishing now there's also a beautiful stone house on the site today but that dates back to the 1870s. The wartime house no longer stands. And frankly, because the Rummel property was literally in front of the Confederate position, Farmer Rummel, who was in his house, you know, as it increasingly became surrounded, was taken into custody by the Confederates, Eric, and they held him for the rest of the day, although they allowed his wife, Sarah Rummel, to flee to a neighbor's property for safety. And I do believe Farmer Rummel lost his best horse in the process to.
0: I want to note we talk about witchers men out there. You look at Stuart in terms of who he has out there. Witchers guys are a relatively recent addition to Stuart's cavalry force. Stuart notes them being more for being kind of these rough and tumble Mm -hmm. fighters more so than being you know, these very polished cavalrymen that he is used to. So I think he's putting them in the right position. This is this is what these guys excel at. Also, their armament yeah. lends itself to this. You know, there's a lot of accounts. That some of these men are using two-band muskets and things such as that. So these are not as well-armed as maybe the rest of Stuart's troopers at this point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about Witcher's guy's in part one, but they are they are pretty much often described as mounted infantry. So yeah, using them tactically on the skirmish line and deploying them makes perfect sense. A lot of them are also said to be armed with Enfields, and in some cases, only have about ten rounds of ammunition apiece. Now later on, Stewart is going to kind of blame Witcher for quote unquote wasting ammunition. Once again, I think it's quite ungenerous of General Stewart picking on. Poor defenseless claw hammer like this. And post-battle
0: blame aside, I give Stewart credit for this initial deployment. He's putting the right guys where you need them to be. And so that frees up the rest of his force to potentially be open to movement. A little mobile. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is yeah. not necessarily a bad thing because I think often when we look at East Cavalry Field, there's very few moments where we would say, man, I give Stewart credit for that. You know, it's not not many people talking about what Stuart does right out there, but I think this is one example of Stuart actually making a right call
1: out there. Yeah. So the um, the thirty fourth Virginia Battalion, they're going to occupy the Rummel Barn and the surroundings. They're going to be supported about an hour later by parts of the fourteenth and sixteenth Virginia. As I said, taking position in and around the barn, knocking out rifle holes in the planks, et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, as we said, the Federals have pushed forward this skirmish line, which includes McIntosh's 1st New Jersey and the 3rd Pennsylvania, about 400 yards or so initially southeast of the Rummel Barn. Um, And eventually almost all of McIntosh's brigade is going to go into action on the line. Now, in addition to this, when we do our East Cavalry Field narratives, we often probably don't give enough credit to the artillery. So the artillery at this point, both sides are really throwing shells back and forth at each other mcgregor's battery for example on Cress ridge throwing shots at pennington we also mentioned that eventually captain alanson randall's uh, federal battery is going to unlimber next to pennington and southwest of the lot buildings so by most accounts the Yankee artillery, Pennington being, as we talked in episode one, really kind of a rising star in the army. By most accounts, the Federals are going to blow their counterparts basically off of the field. And yes, there's even one account of one Yankee shot, you know, landing right in the muzzle of a Confederate gun, you know, kind of thing, which doggone it, there seems to be one of those stories almost on every part of the battlefield, but it sure as heck seems to happen out here at East Cavalry Field too. Uh, But most important part, in my mind, being eventually the Confederate batteries are going to be silenced and are going to withdraw, which will mean as this fighting escalates, the Yankees have artillery support, and for the most part, the Confederates really won't. And
0: another example of Union artillery besting their Confederate counterparts here at Gettysburg. You know, it's not just what we talk about on July 1st or July 2nd or July 3rd on kind of the quote-unquote fishhook line, but we see it out here as well, and I think mm-hmm. it just speaks to the talent and ability of the artillery wing of the Army of the Potomac. These are very well-trained, talented gunners, yeah. and I think we see a guy like Pennington that, you know, certainly he's an all-star out there of his performance, I think, I would rank his performance at Gettysburg up there if any other artillerist on the
1: battlefield. Yeah, and Custer would agree with you. As we said in part one, I think he said we owed credit for the victory to uh, to Pennington. So, you know, this fighting's going to escalate. Witcher is going to push his men west to a uh, stone wall kind of on the western side of the Rummel barn. Eventually, he's even going to order a charge at one point, but will be discouraged by the sight of more Yankees. Meanwhile, the first New Jersey, the third Pennsylvania, they're starting to run low on the skirmish line so at about two o'clock we're going to throw in the fifth michigan from the wolverines onto the line and i can't remember if we mentioned it in part one or not but if we didn't you want to talk about armament fifth michigan only unit here at the battle of gettysburg fully armed with 56 caliber seven shot spencer repeating rifles 6th Michigan, also on the line, they're partially equipped, but the 5th Michigan, only unit who's got them. So Eric, can we dispel the myth once and for all that Buford comes onto the battlefield with Spencer Rifles? Because I don't know about you, but I get that on tours all the time. We can dispel
0: it until the cows come home, but we're still going to hear about it.
1: These myths die hard. They don't like go to th- away. I like to think we are creating a new digital historiography here that people will take. They will internalize. They will listen to us more than once. And eventually, I like to think the Battle of Gettysburg podcast will play its small but humble part in our own you know, new phase of myth-making or myth-busting on the battlefield.
0: I certainly hope so. I will be happy to be proven wrong. All right. Interestingly enough, though, you talk about the units of MacIntosh's troops that are starting to run low on ammunition. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to the intensity of the fighting around the Rommel farm at this point. You know, Witcher's guys are running low. Yeah. You know, you're having the first New Jersey and other units running low. I think that speaks to how significant fighting this is. Sometimes I think when we think of skirmishing, we don't think of heavy fighting. Yeah. We yeah. just think, oh, OK, it's a couple pot shots here and there. But you have times where being on the skirmish line is just as intense as being in a line of battle.
1: Well, you know, I think this is one of those examples. I would agree. And, you know, you're you're the guy on the skirmish line and bullets are flying back and forth. Don't tell me, you know, you know, the old again, whoever saw a dead cavalryman doesn't apply out here at East Cavalry Field. Two people I want to call out, you know, the first New Jersey skirmish line is commanded by the heroic and the young Major Hugh Janeway, who I often talk about on tours when we stop at the first New Jersey monument. But today I also want to give a shout out to the right of the 5th Michigan skirmish line was led by Major Noah Ferry. Now, Ferry was a well-regarded and educated man from Michigan's Mackinac Island, described as, quote, self-reliant, manly, generous, kind, sympathizing, wholly above a mean thing. But the men trusted his clear-headed judgment implicitly. Now, as we get into the afternoon, and the Confederates were pressing the 5th Michigan flanks, Noble Major Ferry was walking his lines and cheering the men on. A man was shot and cried out, Major, I feel faint. I'm going to die. And Ferry looked at the man and replied, Oh, I guess not. You are all right. Only wounded in your arm. So the Major picked up the man, Spencer, fired off a few rounds himself. Then Ferry turned to the men and yelled, Rally, boys! Unfortunately, a Confederate ball crashed into Ferry's skull and killed him instantly. Major Noah Ferry, the highest ranking officer, killed on the battlefield here at East Cavalry Field on the Yankee skirmish line.
0: Once again, proving being on the skirmish
1: line is not an easy assignment. It's not a cakewalk. No, not at all. And, you know, I want to add too that. The men were very disheartened by the popular Major Ferry's death, and when the fifth eventually fell back, they had to leave his body on the field. So the Confederates stripped his corpse of everything but his coat they cut all the buttons and shoulder straps from that. And then the next day, Ferry's body was buried in a shallow grave near Custer's headquarters before later being sent home to Michigan. So would love to know kind of where exactly Custer's headquarters was where they buried that. But again, kind of uh, putting a, a bow, so to speak, on the story of Major Noah Ferry.
0: So really, the big takeaway from all this is the stout defense that these Union skirmishers have put up is beginning to frustrate Jeb Stewart. He's not pushing through to the extent that he wants to. If his goal is to get to the Baltimore Pike or to cause problems behind, He's being delayed because of the performance of these Union troopers. So what we're starting to see is that Stewart's getting frustrated, and Stewart's now going to kind of up the pressure on the Union line, which is going to kind of shift things from being a more dismounted action to now the mounted action that more of us think about when we think about East Cavalry Field.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So I'm going to go back to Stewart's report. And again, Stewart, as we said in his report— Stewart wrote that, you know, my plan was to kind of keep them pinned down in the center with these dismounted skirmishers and send a body of troops around the left. And yeah, that begins what I always call kind of phase two of the fight out here at East Cavalry Field. So Fitz Lee's 1st Virginia of about 300 men are going to be ordered to launch a mounted charge around the Confederate left or what would be around the Yankee right that's going to start to push the dismounted Yankee skirmishers back. Now, McIntosh is going to try to respond by calling in his only reserve, the 1st Maryland, but McIntosh is going to be dismayed to find that Greg had moved them too far to the right. And in fact, Eric, McIntosh gave way to tears and oaths when he found out that General Gregg had moved the 1st Maryland too far from position. Greg does a great job out here. Eh, this might be one of those moments, though, where he's kind of put the chess piece on the wrong square on the board. But, hey, we won't, we won't give Greg too hard of a time for that. Tears and oaths, Eric, tears and oaths. So all, unfortunately, was not lost because we still got more Michigan Wolverine troops on the field. So Greg, not Custer, but Greg, is going to basically go to Colonel William Mann, of Custer's 7th Michigan to charge. Now, I'll point out, in fairness, that some commentators make a big deal about Greg giving the order directly to Colonel Mann and quote-unquote kind of going over Custer's head. No, you can kind of infer from that what you want. But like a good brigadier, Custer is not going to be left behind. And as the 7th Michigan now starts to charge and counterattack against this 1st Virginia, Custer drew his saber raced out to the front, let loose with the immortal battle cry, come on, you Wolverines, and off they went. George Armstrong Custer in the lead of the 7th Michigan. Eric, I'm envisioning this in my mind's eye right now. I'm getting a little misty just thinking about what this you know, what Mike Phipps often referred to as Cavalry Valhalla. And I know Phipps referred to everything as Valhalla, but in this case I think it's true. So let's just envision if we will. Fitz Lee's guys coming on a gallop, Custer's guys coming on a gallop. Folks, if you are into cavalry, this is as good as it gets.
0: With Custer, once again, this is showing his lead from the front style of leadership, which going back to that, he's still in, well, really less than a week on the job as a brigade commander. He's still having to prove himself to these men. And you could make the argument that he's got a lot of pieces that have to go all over. So maybe leading a cavalry charge isn't the best decision (laughs) made. But once again, the bigger picture is it shows his men that he is not going to put them anywhere that he would not go himself. And if you're trying to get buy-in from your troops, this is how you do it. So I think they see that, hey, this guy is young. He's aggressive.
1: He's brave. And hey, we're glad we got him in command of our brigade. Very well said. So, according to Captain James Kidd of the 6th Michigan, there was no check to the charge. The squadrons kept in good form. Every man yelled at the top of his voice until the regiment had gone perhaps five to 600 yards straight toward the Confederates. When folks, bam, Custer and his guys collide with a fence. A stout and sturdy Pennsylvania farmer's Post and rail fence that was still on the field, not been knocked down by either side. You know, one of the problems when you go headlong in on a charge like this, you don't quite maybe get the chance to reconnoiter the field. You know, all the dips and valleys of the Pennsylvania farm country, they didn't see it. Probably a lot of excuses. The important point here, though, is bam, these guys slam into the fence. Now, on the other side of the fence, what would kind of be the northwestern side of the fence, Fitz Lee's guys have basically stopped and dismounted. And so now what you have at this fence is you have close quarters, you know, guys literally at this point, the sabers, the pistols, you know, maybe some hand-to-hand combat going here, guys getting pulled out of the saddle, you know, the oaths, the cries for surrender. You got all that stuff going here as Custer's first charge has unfortunately been stopped by this obstacle, which, you know, when he wrote later that the field was not so great for cavalry operations, I'm thinking he probably had this fence in mind when he wrote those famous words.
0: And I can only imagine what these troopers were saying when they hit that fence. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's almost kind of comical, not, not no. the fact that it's, you know, people are getting hurt and animals are getting hurt, you know, not in that, but just kind of this idea of this grand charge and all of a sudden, wham, there's a fence. You know, it's something like a cartoon, if you will. But the takeaway from this is there's going to be heavy fighting along that fence. So once again, going back to this idea of whoever saw a dead cavalryman, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be at that fence. Yeah, you know, I think that is a rough spot to be in. I think you're going to see some pretty brutal fighting out at that point.
1: You are, and we have eyewitness accounts. Major Luther Tobridge wrote of the astonishment and distress. Apparently, without any attempt to change direction, they dashed themselves upon a high staked and railed fence, squadron after squadron, breaking until upon the struggling mass in front, like the waves of the sea upon a rocky shore, until all were mixed into one confused and tangled Mass. other accounts talk about it was kill all you can bullets were flying mighty thick one man said the fighting here was fierce and terrible with all the fighting and confusion going on here at the fence a captain in the 7th michigan named captain george armstrong so we have captain george armstrong and general george armstrong custer what are the odds i mean you don't meet many guys named armstrong anymore do you well there's the Armstrong wrestling family. Oh very good. Bullet Bob. There you have ooh very good reference. So you have Captain Armstrong saying to General Custer basically to the effect of, "Boy, we're in big trouble, General." And Custer says, "Yes, I know, and we must get back under the cover of our own guns." And so with that, Custer's guys are going to mount up. And let's be clear, George Armstrong Custer never retreats. It's just what I like to call a retro movement. A retro movement kind of turning to the right away from the fence, kind of gracefully coming back around. They would go back towards the lothouse. Union batteries, Pennington and Randall are going to give them covering fires. They go back. But the, the Michiganers are going to kind of just gracefully ride back towards the Hanover and Low Dutch Road. Their charge, eh, having not been quite as successful, but they did help stop the Confederate momentum. You got to give them some credit for that.
0: That is a very generous interpretation <laughs> there. I think we should also give some credit to members of the 3rd Pennsylvania as well that are once again holding the end. That Once again, we talk about this idea of funneling Confederate troopers into where they can be dealt with. That's what we're seeing here. And so we have to give some credit also to Greg's forces outside of Custer there, too. I think the third Pennsylvania is going to perform very well out on East Cavalry Field in this day.
1: Yeah, and we'll come back to the third PA for sure. Now, Colonel McIntosh supposedly gets up near the lothouse and tries to meet some of the fleeing Wolverines. For God's sakes, men, if you are ever going to stand, stand now, for you are on free soil as Custer and his boys head back towards the Hanover Road. Now, Eric... If you stopped George Armstrong Custer's cavalry career at this moment, you've got Hanover, where I think he performed very well and more of sort of a traditional having the boys dismount capacity. But now you've kind of got two charges on the resume that eh, haven't quite maybe gone as well as, as you might have hoped. You've shown the boys you're willing to get out in front, but bam, you ran into some obstacles at Hunterstown. You run into the fence on East Cavalry Field. You know, as
0: I've long said, it's all fun and games until you hit headlong into a fence. So I think this is a good point now to move into this third phase of the fighting at East Cavalry Field on July 3rd. Once again, think about how this day has gone for Jeb Stewart. You hope to push through the skirmish line, you're checked. You hope that your mounted charge is going to break through, that's been checked. I think by this point, Stewart's frustration level is, it's boiling over now. And think about for the last two weeks for Stewart, it's been one frustration after another. Some could even argue the entire Gettysburg campaign up to this point has been one giant frustration for Jeb Stewart. So what is he going to do? He's going to basically throw as many men into this area as he can to try to break through and achieve his objectives on July 3rd.
1: Yes, indeed. So it is now going to be approximately 3 p.m. What's happening at 3 p.m. over on Cemetery and Seminary Ridges? I do believe it's the Pettigrew and Trimble assault. <laughs> With a little help from the Virginians under George Pickett. Minor role. Minor assault. So, exactly. So, again, if you are conspiracy-minded, if you like to think this is all coordinated, the timing, you know, coincidentally or not, does kind of work out in your favor there. But it's um, So it's three o'clock. A long line of horsemen are going to emerge from the woods on Crest Ridge, first at a trot, and then break into a gallop. Again, you're going to see... Units involved, kind of different books that you read, but it seems to be basically a combined force, primarily of Fitz Lee and Wade Hampton, probably as many as about 2,000 men or so. And Captain William E. Miller of the aforementioned 3rd Pennsylvania is going to write A grander spectacle has rarely been beheld, their polished saber blades dazzled in the sun. So, again, if you are into 19th century cavalry, this is, as we said, as good as it gets. Now, as a little sidebar, because we like to do tactics and strategy on the show, again, some authors will say Stuart ordered this final charge. Others will say Wade Hampton ordered the final charge. It's actually not really clear who ordered this. Stuart, in his own report, simply described this as, gradually, the hand-to-hand fighting involved the greater portion of the command. And Wade Hampton, an old friend of ours, Wade Hampton wrote that seeing the state of affairs... I rode rapidly to the front to take charge of these regiments. And while doing this, to my surprise, I saw the rest of my brigade and Fitz Lee's brigade charging. The charge of my brigade has been recently explained to me as having been ordered by Captain Barker, Assistant Adjutant General, who supposed that it was intended to take the whole brigade to the support of Colonel Chambliss, a mistake which was very naturally brought about by the appearance of affairs on the field. So I'm going to pause there for a minute the grand charge might not even be ordered by Stuart but what I think it does speak to is at this point the confusion you've got all over the field we are infantry centric people we like to think of long semi-orderly battle lines and brigades going in together and all of that stuff but what I think you've got at this point literally stretching from Cress Ridge past the Rummel farm and all the way out to the low Dutch road is dismounted squadrons dismounted regiments guys who are mounted guys who are not mounted I think you just got a confusing situation on the field at this point. And in some respects, maybe more confusing than even an infantry fight. I think what we look at, too, is
0: when these charges happen, we picture in our mind these grand lines moving. That's not really the case here. And also, when the contact is made between the two combatants, got horses crashing into each other, men being thrown off, all kinds of chaos taking place. It's a different kind of chaos than what we'd see in an infantry firefight.
1: Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. So as the rebel cavalry now starts to progressively get closer to the Union batteries, Greg is going to send a staff officer to order the batteries to withdraw. Lieutenant James Chester, leading one of the uh, sections, quote, was not in cheerful humor and said, tell the general to go to hell, as Chester continued to fire a canister at the approaching Confederates. So... We got to find somebody to stop this charge. Again, it might be as many as 2,000 Confederates. Really, the last unengaged unit on the field at this point is going to be Custer's 1st Michigan of approximately 400 men. So, once again, it's probably going to be Greg who's going to give that order. He's going to go to the colonel of the 1st Michigan, Colonel Charles Town. And Town is, he's weak, he's sickly, he's scrawny, he's dying of tuberculosis. He tries to give a little pep talk to the men. You know, probably like think of Michigan, think of your sweethearts type of stuff. When what happens, Eric? George Armstrong Custer just barges in, says to him, Colonel Town, the seventh is broke. I shall have to ask you to charge the rebels. And with that, Custer, Town, and the first Michigan take off again on another spectacular charge across the field.
0: And in my mind, I envision town almost like Doc Holliday in Tombstone. You know, he, he knows his days are numbered but he's hanging on he's yeah that just I don't know maybe
1: that's not true but that's how my mind wants to view town here at Gettysburg. Well nothing wrong with that and you know having seen images of town he's not quite as dapper as you know Val Kilmer in our favorite movie Tombstone which by the way are we ever going to do that Tombstone rewatch episode? Maybe. We got to do that at some point. Not quite as dapper as Doc Holliday but it is a valid point because one of the quotes on town was always you know that he sought death on the battlefield to avoid the death that he knew was waiting for him at home
0: now the real question was custer wearing a bustle
1: <laughs> how lewd. he's not wearing a bustle and at this point he's not wearing a hat because he has lost the hat So Custer sprints four lengths into the lead. As one trooper said, quote, his long straight saber is gleaming in the sunshine. He is bareheaded and glorious. His yellow locks of hair are flying like a battle flag. And another said that Custer was, quote, as beautiful as the eye ever gazed upon. Eric, does this fit your traditional descriptions of, you know, 19th, 20th, or even 21st century military? You know, it certainly
0: fits the very glorious image that we sometimes have of 18th and 19th century commanders charging on a, on a field of battle. I mean, yeah. that, that's, you know, and, and I want to point out. The image of glory we have in our heads of battle is a far cry from what the reality of battle actually is. But once again, it's the popular image we have. It's the popular image that has been cultivated through pop culture and things like that. Think about how many movies have the grand cavalry charge and everybody's looking good and, you know, the flowing hair and the flowing bandanas and things. So it certainly fits into that, I would say.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I often on my on my East Cavalry tours, I will often stop at that point and I'll ask, you know, how many military veterans do we have in the group and For the most part, we always have at least a couple, and they will raise their hands. And i would say, well, how many of you ever described your commanding officer as beautiful and glorious? And of course, nobody in the modern military. You're right. It goes to this 19th century image of glory and all of that stuff. So whenever somebody says, you know, Civil War people were like, just like you and me, I would say, no, in some cases they weren't. And it was a different era. And men could flowerly talk to other men that, frankly, in a way... I'm not comfortable doing today.
0: Well, and even think just a few years before the famous charge of the light brigade during the Crimean War, you know, this very glorious moment here. It's 19th century way they viewed war. And I think that has always been what I think is very fascinating. I think we have maybe today a more realistic concept of what war is than what a lot of Americans probably felt in the 19th century. Now, those experiencing it understood the true face of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think those at home still were hanging on to these very glorious images that we see. So it's not just the United States, but as I said, think about Tennyson's poem on the Charge of the Light Brigade, the most famous moment of the Crimean War. Or for better or worse, in popular minds.
1: Yeah, and I can pretty much tell you, being a student of the life of George Armstrong Custer, almost every charge the guy is involved in for the rest of his life, somebody compares to the charge of the Light mm-hmm. Brigade. You know, kind of like the way we reference Ric Flair, in those days the pop culture reference was the charge of the Light Brigade.
0: So we're saying that the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War was the goat of cavalry charges during the 19th maybe, century?
1: Maybe, or at least the equivalent of the Four Horsemen, maybe. Good point, good point. So Custer himself wrote that, quote, I challenge the annals of warfare to produce a more brilliant or successful charge of cavalry than the one we're talking about right now. So you've got them basically going across the field, galloping at each other at full speed, and when they do finally collide, it was said that the impact seemed like the crashing of falling timber. Horses were somersaulting, men were slashing and cutting at each other, and once again, quote, the clashing of sabers, the firing of pistols, the demands for surrender, and the cries of combatants filled the air on bucolic East Cavalry Field.
0: Wow, we've talked a good bit about Custer, and rightfully so. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Is there anybody else on the field? You know, I would say there is another favorite of ours on the field. (laughs) That bear hunting son of a gun, Wade Hampton, is right in the mix of all of this. And I believe, Jim, you've got some good stuff on Hampton and the way he was handling the fighting on July 3rd at this part of the battle.
1: Well, I sure can do that. Yeah, great point bringing up Hampton. And, you know, before we even get into the Hampton anecdote, it's a good point to stop and remind people because, again, it's always portrayed as Custer versus Stewart. to use our play-calling analogy. At the play-calling level, it's Greg versus Stewart. Mm-hmm. At the level we're at right now, though, it's Custer versus Wade Hampton. So if any of you have a historical print on your wall at home that shows Jeb Stewart leading this charge, tear that sucker down, tear that off your wall, because the Confederator deserves the credit right now for sticking his neck out there is, as we said, our very own favorite Wade Hampton. I'm thinking of our
0: super fans now in a, in a scene similar to glory, you know, tear it up, rip it up, rip it up, you know, <laughs> tear it up. You know, So, so feel free to do that. Uh, save the frame though. So, you know, you can always use it for something else. Don't break the frame.
1: All right. So now as the two sides collide with each other and more union troops are going to come into the fray that, that we're going to want to talk about, but to kind of uh, close the loop, so to speak on Wade Hampton, you know, as this is all going on. And as we said, take your mind off of infantry lines of battle at this point you've got mounted horsemen kind of swarming all over the place one rebel officer is seen fighting his way through this melee and it turns out to be wade hampton mounted on his favorite horse butler now the yankee's corner hampton by a fence he slashes away with his heavy four foot straight sword but he sl- he slashed one yankee out of the saddle and then he shot two others with his pistol a federal meanwhile drops a sword down on Hampton's head while another shot him in the side Hampton calls the man a quote dastardly coward for shooting him in the rear and then struck once more on the head, Hampton replies by cleaving that attacker's head in two. It's like the Battle Royal here. Wade Hampton just taking on multiple guys. Finally, though, some men are going to come to Hampton's assistance. I don't want to say rescue because it feels like he was doing pretty good there. But some of his men are going to come to his assistance. And with Hampton's own head wound bleeding, he's eventually going to be let off the field.
0: Once again, can we say Wade Hampton, one of the toughest guys in the Civil War? When people talk about you know Confederate cavalry commanders being tough, they always talk about that guy out west, Forrest. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'd put Hampton up against Forrest any day of the week. Not only is Hampton a more competent commander, but I think he's a lot tougher in the field than what we're seeing. I mean, this is this is hardcore action here. And also, before he even gets into the war, he's hunting bears with a knife, folks. Up at High Hampton, the, the, yeah. the palatial estate. And, you know, those Western North Carolina Bears, they're they are tough going. You know, you got it. So I don't know. I don't know what was tougher. Western North Carolina Bears or angry Union troopers on July 3rd. I don't know. But once again, Hampton holds his own out there. And this just further elevates the legend that is Wade Hampton in my mind.
1: Well, that's great. And you're right. And I love Wade Hampton, too. You know, and you just brought up a point there that we probably would have come to at some point. But do you think at this point... The Confederates are, what the hell? You know, where the hell did this Yankee resistance come from? You know, this is, again, Stuart's guys, and horses, don't get me wrong, they are exhausted from their march and their approach to Gettysburg. But, you know, they're other than Brandy Station and maybe the last couple of scrapes and skirmishes, they got to be thinking, where the hell is this resistance coming from? Because they are not used to seeing the Yankee cavalry behave like this.
0: Oh, it's certainly a culture shock for the Confederates at this point. You know, For yeah. the previous year, they have literally been riding circles around their Union counterparts. It's almost embarrassing, the performance of the Union cavalry. And here in the Gettysburg campaign, you're starting to see some signs of life. And I think what we're seeing now is that moment where the Union cavalry equals their Confederate counterparts and maybe begins to... Take the lead mm-hmm. of them in terms of their ability. And certainly what we'll see is their, the way they perform in 1864, especially in the Shenandoah Valley. You start to see this development here in the Gettysburg Campaign. And so it's a critical moment for the development of that portion of the Army of the Potomac.
1: You know, and dare I say, for those who are like, "Eh, why should I care about East Cavalry Field? We gave you a couple reasons in episode one. This would be another reason as well. It's the continued development of the Yankee Cavalry as a fighting force.
0: And I brought up, you know, the 1864 Shenandoah Valley campaign for a good reason, because we're going to see some of these same figures playing prominent roles in that campaign. So we really see the use of that. You'll see them later in the Appomattox campaign performing really well. It's. This is where the Union cavalry is really coming into its own. This is, I yeah. think, not the point where they're getting competitive, but the point where they're surpassing their Confederate yeah, counterparts.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah, agree. So, you know, we've talked, as we jokingly referenced a few minutes ago, we've talked a lot about Custer. Uh, I think we've given General Gregg his due, but let's call out another guy. Uh, we mentioned briefly Captain William Miller of the 3rd Pennsylvania. Uh, he's going to play also a prominent role in this action. And so Miller, if you'll remember, he's commanding a um, squadron of the 3rd Pennsylvania, and they have basically been ordered at this point. They've, you know, the skirmish action is over. They've fallen back, and they've basically been ordered by Greg or McIntosh to basically hold the Low Dutch Road at all hazards. That would basically put them right now on Hampton's left flank. So they are probably initially dismounted along the road. There was a wood lot along the Low Dutch Road that, although overgrown, is still there today. There's actually a little hollow. I've walked down to that wood lot in the past. And there's a little hollow where if you're down there in front of the, the woods where the 3rd Pennsylvania probably was initially, you actually can't see the fighting because of a rise of ground. But I'm sure they could hear it and they knew what was going on. Now, Captain Miller was not feeling well on this day. He had a cramp. One of his assistants was rubbing the cramp out of him. Kind of a little battlefield massage going on here while all the action was going on in his front. But Captain Miller, cramps or not, was a good officer. And he comes out to observe the action. He's watching the fighting with one of his assistants, Lieutenant William Brooke Rawl, And the two of them are watching the action. And they can clearly see that Custer and the Wolverines are outnumbered. Uh, One of them uses the phrase that the Confederates are too heavy for Custer, which again is military jargon for outnumbered. So they see an opportunity though to hit Hampton in the left flank, and as the story goes, Miller turns to Brooke Rall and says, you know, if I'm court-martialed for abandoning this position, will you support me? And as the story goes, William Brooke Rawl says, I would follow you to hell. And with that, the guys mound up, they mound up the squadron, and yippee-ki-yay, they go charging right into Hampton's left flanks. So now, in addition to being pinned down in his front, Hampton's got Yankees coming in on his flanks.
0: This speaks to also, I think, the performance of some of MacIntosh's troops on July 3rd. A lot of the attention goes to Custer. And, you know, he's outside of probably Robert E. Lee, the most famous officer on the Gettysburg battlefield, as history is going to view him. Everybody has heard of George Armstrong Custer. So... And also, he's doing a very dynamic movement here. It's, you know, frankly, we pay attention to that guy's doing something. Not saying that McIntosh isn't. By McIntosh holding the way he does allows Custer to have that success. Also, at the point when this battle is maybe hanging in the balance, here comes the third Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. with Captain Miller and others sort of breaking the back of the Confederates. And one interesting note, since we are on Cemetery Hill, we are not far from the final resting place of Captain William Miller, who I should note is the only soldier that is a recipient of the Medal of Honor for the Battle of Gettysburg buried in the National Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Now, you have Charles Collis, but he won it at Fredericksburg, not here at Gettysburg. So, Miller... Medal of Honor recipient. And of course, if you get a chance to see his grave, it will be the kind of cool government headstone but with the yep. gold engraving on it, which is really neat.
1: I'm always pleasantly surprised at how many people don't know William E. Miller's story. When I take him out to the field and we go out, we stand out uh, near the Third Pennsylvania Monument. I have an image of Miller. He looks very much like Marcus Crino, dark hair and mustache. And I'll hold it up and say, Who is this? And people will often confuse him with Reno. Although, again, in fairness to Miller, Miller is a lot thinner in the face <laughs> than, than Reno was. But yeah, to Eric's point, Miller really comes in here and helps break the Confederates back. Now there is slashing, there is fighting, eventually, and we should point out, too, we're also going to get contributions from portions of the first New Jersey. Over on the Confederate, right? You've got probably another squadron of the third PA, fifth Michigan, a lot of guys now hitting Hamptons, right? Hamptons getting it from three sides, but it's really Custer punching him in the face, while Miller comes in kind of with that left hook and, and, and kind of knocks him out. So yeah, just to kind of close the story on Miller. Eventually, they're going to chase the Confederates, supposedly all the way back to the Rummel Farm and to uh, Cress Ridge beyond. Captain Miller broke his saber near the Rummel Farm and was shot and wounded in the arm. Now in 1877, he claimed that he returned to the field and recovered his broken saber amongst farmer rummels relics that they found it kind of in the farm lane or up around that area as we said miller later received the congressional medal of honor he was awarded that in 1897 which was 34 years later but meanwhile he had mustered out of the army in 64 he went into the hardware business in 1898 he was elected to the pa state senate and he died in 1919 at the age of 83 So as Eric said, he's the only Gettysburg Medal of Honor recipient buried today in Gettysburg's National Cemetery, but he's outside of the Civil War section because he died later. So for years, his headstone did not even mention his Medal of Honor, and that wasn't changed until the 1970s. So imagine coming here in the 1950s or 60s, and, you know, you would just sort of see Captain William Miller. His grave is kind of by one of the sidewalks. You know, you can walk right by it, but imagine not even seeing a Medal of Honor reference. So I'm glad at least, Eric, that we have corrected that for the uh, historical record.
0: And we did have a listener question that sort of asked you, "Why his Macintosh's guy has MacIntosh's guys kind of been forgotten a little bit?" I think we kind of dealt with that, but we wanted to certainly go into a little detail yeah. on some of these men, so it's not just all Custer all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I yeah. Let me just throw my two cents on that because you know I've studied the life of George Custer almost literally my entire life. You know, as Eric said, Custer's more famous than McIntosh. He's more famous than David M. Gregg. Frankly, Custer's fame does not really arise from what he did at Gettysburg. Custer was very successful as a brigade and a division commander all the way up through the Appomattox campaign. But most people start with George Armstrong Custer on June 25th, 1876, and they kind of work their way back. So for many years, Custer was, you know, a national hero. He was even to a lot of his men, a martyr, somebody who had died, you know, for manifest destiny and for his country. So you just got to accept Custer's more famous than a lot of these other guys. But as I said before, I would argue today that Macintosh, Greg, and these guys are getting their due in the modern Gettysburg literature, which is in many ways starting to look to tear down old heroes and try to make new ones.
0: And this is another case that we see where I think students, the battle fall into the trap of this person won the battle. Yeah. Well, it's once again, it's a team effort out there at East yep. cavalry Field. Yep. You know, if McIntosh and his men don't do what they do, I don't know if Custer ex- is as successful as he is. If Custer doesn't do what he does, can McIntosh hold? Or if Greg doesn't put together a good plan in the first place, do any of these pieces have an effect? Yep. So yep. I think we have to be careful that when we give others credit, it doesn't necessarily mean we're taking credit from other right. people. Right. And I think too often it's that transactional, well, if I give this person credit,
1: it takes away from somebody else. I'm going to call this the Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain principle. Well, I think we did that in part 1. I think we did t- and you're right. You know, little round top first cult sill. You can only like one of them, you know, kind of mentality. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not a fan of that sort of thing at all. I'm I'm starting to sense team effort might be becoming our theme of season 3 because we've come back to this a couple times. You know, team effort when I think of a team,
0: you know, a unit that operates as one. I know where this is going. The best example I can
1: think of this. Four Horsemen. I knew you were going there. Yeah. So there we go. Now, there's two of us. Who would be the other two horsemen? I mean, we have a lot of friends. We have a lot of friends. But who, you know, if we've got to pick two, who would it be? Would it be the team at Getty's Gear for letting us record? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: maybe. You know, maybe there are J.J. Dillon for getting everything set up for us to excel. I
1: like it. I think we've got to make Britt Eisenberg our recently crowned champion. I think we've got to make him a third horseman. Who's number four? You know,
0: that's a good question.
1: How about at least for now, licensed Battlefield Guide Rick Schrader, who is co-sponsored this very special episode.
0: Well, you know, if you look at the history of the Four Horsemen, yeah. there's kind of the group that's always there, but then you get some others that kind of come and go at times. You know, your Barry Windom's and others like that. So, yeah, I think we've got our core group developing right. for the Gaysburg Guide Horsemen. So, so right
1: now, it's Jim, Eric, Britt, and Rick is the Horseman, and we have the group at Gettys Gear is our J.J. Dillon. I think this works. Yeah,
0: I think absolutely. I think we're going right. to run roughshod over the territory
1: we've got the titles we've got you know we've got Brit's Batchelder Sickles championship we've got it all so should we stop fooling around because you know some people don't like when we fool around stop having fun you two get to the history
0: well you know I mean once again I'm going to point out this is a free podcast we can say whatever we want we can have as much fun as we want with this because end of the day it's free it's free and also for <laughs> us studying history is interesting and fun if it wasn't we wouldn't be doing this if we were having a miserable time doing this we would not be on the air right now so you know if you don't like it hey that's it's your free, it's uh, free. That's you're sweet. not
1: losing anything But well, look we do want you to like it if you don't like you know our humble attempts at humor if you don't like it lighten up francis you know we're still doing the history stuff but no we're not trying to chase people away we want you guys to like it okay but i do want to get back to this credit concept because all of that aside and that's all true you know ultimately we don't know the casualties of East cavalry field but you know we have estimates greg reported about 254 losses total casualties of which about 219 of the 254 were in the michigan brigade and we think about 30 Federals were killed. About 29 of the 30 were in Custer's Michigan Brigade. So I think in our 21st century more jaundiced and cynical look, somebody's going to throw up their hands and say, well, all that means is Custer knows how to get his men killed. And I get that. But it also means who did the lion's share of the fighting at East Cavalry Field. It was the Michigan Brigade. I'm not taking it away from McIntosh. But if you want to say, well, why does Custer get the credit? His guys clearly did the fighting. I'm going to pour myself a cup of coffee right now, sit back and tell somebody to change my mind.
0: I will just note, too, that casualties do not always indicate <laughs>
1: there we go.
0: performance and importance. You know, but, but once again, it speaks to the fact that Custer's guys are going to see hard fighting out there on July 3rd. Once again, just because they suffer casualties doesn't take away.
1: But they suffer all of them. But they suffer yeah. all of
0: them. Well, I you mean, know.
1: OK, but hey, we def- we defended the field with zero casualty. It was the hardest fight we ever saw. No killed, no wounded, three missing.
0: Hey, it helps when you're on the defense and you're able to be fighting behind positions of strength. That helps. Hey, sometimes you get the better draw in a battle. It happens. But (laughs) but I think we have to say that once again, you know, going back to this team concept, there's plenty
1: of credit to go around on East Cavalry Field. Absolutely. And we would not take it away from Macintosh, even though Custer did the fighting. Okay, so where do you want to go from here? Do you want to sort of start to wrap up the the close of the fighting and go from there? Yeah, I think let's kind of uh, wrap it up
0: and then kind of get into not only some of our listener questions, but what kind of happened to some of these individuals after? Yeah, sounds
1: good. And I know we had a question, too, about historiography. Yeah, so basically now at the close of the day, uh, Stuart's men are pushed back towards Ridge and beyond. Greg and the boys basically are back along the Hanover Road, more or less, more or less in the positions that they started. There are some accounts, you know, Union accounts basically say we chased the Confederates all the way back beyond Ridge, and that we occupied the Rummel farm that night confederate accounts said no we still held that ground and held the Rummel farm that night so it's kind of hard you know if you want to kind of figure out exact positions you know kind of the whole where exactly was everybody's standing mantra that's a little bit difficult to do but i will say you know not surprisingly both sides tried to claim victory and jeb stewart wrote that quote the enemy were driven from the field really which was now raked by their artillery. No more hand-to-hand fighting occurred, but the wounded were removed and the prisoners, a large number, taken to the rear. So clearly Stuart is trying to put the best feather on, you know, this whole episode that he can. But I think, you know, Greg kind of sums it up better. Quote, defeated at every point, The enemy withdrew. And I think Greg is right. That's what happened, in my opinion, in my interpretation.
0: Same with me. If you look at what is Greg's objective on July 3rd, he achieves it. What is Stuart's objective on July 3rd? He does not achieve it. So if we look at it from that standpoint, it's a union victory there. Taking nothing away from the hard fighting that Stuart's troopers are going to do. But ultimately, that hard fighting does not accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. And Greg holds... The position he is supposed to hold, he maintains the position he is supposed to maintain, and he prevents the worst case scenario for George Meade out there.
1: Yeah, and so we talked about casualties Union estimates are 254 casualties. Again, we don't know on the Confederate side, but Stewart's losses have been estimated at about 285, maybe more, because not all of them report. But at least of the 285 that that we do think we know, again, the majority were in Wade Hampton's brigade. Once again, a shout out to Hampton um, as well as Fitz Lee. So again, it was really Hampton, Fitz Lee, and the Wolverines suffering these the highest casualties, which I think really again speaks to the Ferrari of these mounted attacks. So please, please save the whoever saw a dead cavalryman joke, at least when you're talking about East Cavalry Field. Stuart wrote, mounted fights never lasted long, but there were more men killed and wounded in this fight than I ever saw on any field where the fighting was done mounted.
0: I think that sums it up well.
1: So Eric, you know, people often ask, we know what happened to George Custer. You know, we're going to do a deep dive bio on Custer at some point in our run here. Uh, But whatever happened to David M. Gregg afterwards? What happened to a guy like him? Did he get credit?
0: What happened? Well, let's kind of preface this by a listener question Mm -hmm. um, who asked, why doesn't David Gregg emerge as a bigger hero after the battle? He seems to fade into the background among Union cavalrymen. So let's kind of start with that premise there and let's look at what Gregg does after the battle. What we're going to see is he is going to continue to serve in the Army of the Potomac. At one point, he's actually going to command the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac in early 1864 until the arrival of some guy named Phil Sheridan. Of course, then the bulk of that force is going to be taken out into the Shenandoah Valley, and Greg will remain with the forces around Petersburg, where he does excellent service, helping screen Attacks and movements of the army So he continues to perform very Well once again If you think about 1864 if you're looking At the summer and fall Certainly Sheridan's guys out In the valley are getting way more Attention than what Gregg's men Would have received around Petersburg But eventually David Gregg Resigns his commission before The war is over and in his letter Dated January 25th 1865 He is going to write having for More than three years been on uninterrupted service in the field, commanding cavalry in the Army of the Potomac, I at this time find such an imperative demand for my continued presence at home that my personal attention may be given to pressing private duties and business. I can no longer defer action to secure my discharge from the service. Now, over time, Greg's reasons begin to kind of, I think, emerge. According to one account, Greg feared a violent death in battle (laughs) and actually described himself as a coward. In late 1864, when his nerve finally gave way. So I think what I look at is this takes nothing away from his performance. And frankly, I would never call David Gregg a coward. I think he might have called himself that, Mm -hmm. but I think he's being very harsh on himself. Sure. And war wears on people. He's not the first and he's not going to be on the last that, that has this happen to them. But what this does is it causes him to miss sort of that climactic moment of the right. war, of the Appomattox campaign. Right. Um, so when it comes time to it, other troopers kind of emerge as, as this, guys like Sheridan or yep. Custer or, or others. So he kind of fades away. After the war, he's going to settle in Reading, Pennsylvania. Hey, once again another Reading reference here.
1: Is that the, th- the unspoken theme of season 3 trying to get a larger audience in Reading, Pennsylvania? I
0: don't know, maybe yeah. we need to do an episode from Reading sometime.
1: Well, maybe we could broadcast. I like it.
0: He's also going to farm near Milford, Delaware as well, but really his life is fairly dull and over time he kind of becomes to regret leaving the army in 1868, he's going to apply for reinstatement, but the cavalry command that he wanted actually went to his cousin, John Irvin Gregg. So he remained basically still in civilian life. In 1874, he's going to be appointed by Ulysses S. Grant to be the United States consul to Prague in Austria Hungary, but he soon returned home because his wife was homesick. Greg is going to be active in local and state affairs. He's also going to raise a lot of funds to preserve Valley Forge as a national shrine. So that's kind of a cool cool. uh, part there. He also visits the Gettysburg battlefield numerous times and gives speeches at events involved with that. In 1891, uh, he became active in Pennsylvania politics and was elected as a term as the Auditor General of Pennsylvania. Greg is going to die in Redding, Pennsylvania, one of the oldest survivors of the war in the state. In fact, he is going to die in 1916 at the age of 83. He's also, if you ever get a chance to go to Reading, he's buried in the Charles Evans Cemetery there. So if you're in Redding, you want to go see the grave of David Greg, there he is. Uh, he 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 will be memorialized with a bronze equestrian statue in his adopted hometown of Reading. And the city's American Legion post is named the Gregg Post in his honor. There is also the Gregg Cavalry Shaft on East Cavalry Field honoring his service, as well as the service of all Union and Confederate forces that fought on the field that day.
1: Yeah, and I would just add he is also one of the portrait statues on the Pennsylvania State Monument. So, again, you know, a lot of people don't look at these individual memorials, but David M. Gregg is not forgotten here on the Gettysburg Battlefield by any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you know, so that was a great overall uh, biography of General Gregg. I'll just add my two cents. I, too, have always thought, you know, had he stayed through Appomattox, the average Civil War student would probably be a lot more familiar with David M. Gregg today. often see in some interpretations that his resignation was primarily influenced by, you know, sort of getting passed over by Sheridan and, you know, basically feeling disgruntled about that, which, you know, he certainly had a a right to do. Uh, But he never really wrote enough that clearly says that. So we really don't know. And, you know, when we don't have anything else, I tend to take things at face value. I think he's a guy who was worn down by three years of combat. And, you know, maybe army politics as well kind of kind of all played in that, um, in that decision to do that. But anyways, David M. Gregg, you know, sometimes you got to live with your decisions. Had the dude stayed through 1865 and, of course, survived. You know, we might know him better today. Uh, but on the other hand, he didn't get killed by Indians in 1876 like other guys did. And, you know, that could have played into it a little bit as well. And this might be a bit
0: of a hot take here, but someone can make the argument that David Gregg has an even better record in the war than John Buford. So think about this. Buford's often considered the great cavalry hero of the Army of the Potomac. I'd put Gregg's service up against him. And I think, you know, you could argue Gregg is one of those great heroes of the Army of the Potomac. But once again, he does. He leaves the stage at an inopportune time, yeah. and and certainly the same. We could argue even with John Buford. Yeah, he, we don't see Buford in '64, but right, but I right. think you know Greg's service on July 3rd here at Gettysburg is as important as what Buford does on July
1: 1st. I think you could certainly make the case too. Um, you know, to what you're saying. Yeah, obviously, with Greg throughout the war, we have a larger body of work. And again, you know, as we said in part one. He's not flashy. He doesn't like the newspapers. And I'm not saying that Buford was flashy or a newspaper guy. But, you know, you have to have a certain something in your persona to kind of rise above the cream of the crop. And, of course, Sam Elliott gives us the definitive Buford in the movie. And we all know darn well when people say they love Buford, they're thinking of Sam Elliott. You know, we don't get a David M. Gregg, Sam Elliott-like interpretation to kind of cement him in the public mind.
0: Can you imagine the job they would have done on David Gregg's beard in the movie?
1: (laughs) They would have just reused Longstreet's beard, you know, in between takes. Like dusted it off, paint Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Could you imagine? So with that, I think that kind of puts a bow on the action at East Calvary Field. And as we always do, we go now to listener questions. Now, some of you might have heard some of your questions answered during the course of the episode. And as we always like to say... Even if we don't answer your question directly, we use it to help shape the direction of the show. So one way or the other, you're going to get your question answered. So we have three listener questions okay. left. The first comes from Superfan, fellow colleague, and poet laureate of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, licensed battlefield guide, John Zervis, who's going to ask, was the Confederate objective to take the Low Dutch Road slash Hanover Road intersection? Why was this important? And what if it had been successful? Jim, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I'm confused. First of all, if the question is from John, why did it not rhyme? As our poet laureate, right? Aren't poems supposed to rhyme? Did he give give it to us in verse or something like that? Or? No, no. Well, first of all, thank you, superfan John, for the question and your interest in the show. Uh, you know, I feel like we have primarily addressed that throughout the part of the the two parts. So maybe this would kind of be a good time to summarize our own personal thoughts on it. To summarize my take on it, Stuart is protecting the flank, looking to cut up the enemy's rear in the event of a Union defeat on July 3rd. Harass and cut them up, you know, if they're retreating and that sort of thing. For those who think that sort of uh, strategy would be impossible, licensed battlefield guide John Zervis... Superfan Steve Floyd and myself earlier this week took a road trip down to Winchester to specifically study the Battle of third winchester and Although the tables were turned in that battle, Jubal Early's infantry going up against Union infantry, one of the things that broke the back of the Confederates in that battle was a massive Union cavalry attack that came in on the Confederate flank, crushed the flank, and got in behind Early's army. Not coincidentally, spearheading part of that attack was Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer. Third Winchester, guys, September of 1864. And I only bring this up again to point out, so the notion of cavalry getting into the rear of an army to kind of help create a panic and cause them to run is not far-fetched. It can work. Now, unfortunately, on July 3rd for Robert E. Lee, Confederate infantry did not do their job. And as we've seen here, Confederate cavalry was not successful. But so while I don't think it was coordinated with Pickett's charge, I do think Stewart hoped to get into the Union rear if other things went in the Confederate favor. And folks, that makes this an important action. This to me is not just some sort of often ridiculed sideshow that, uh, you know, the infantry fans often make it out to be. And
0: I would just add, if I was George Meade at this battle, I do not want a scenario where the Confederates now hold the Hanover Road, Low Dutch Road intersection. Yeah, you would think. Because this is going to create a lot of problems for me elsewhere. And so Meade is very aware of it. Greg is very aware of it. Just because the Confederates did not gain the objective does not lessen the importance right, of the objective. Right. And so we don't often do what ifs because we really don't know what would have happened. But I, I think we can speculate with some level of authority that had the Confederates been able to push through, it would have caused a number of issues for George Meade's army on July 3rd. Does it mean the Confederates win? I'm not going there. Right. But it would create a much more difficult situation for Meade here at this battle.
1: Yeah. And again, we don't do what ifs other than what if Jackson was at Gettysburg still being our most popular episode and the accompanying field program that was highly attended. We don't do what ifs. No,
0: no, no, we don't. So our last two listener questions don't Deal directly with East Cavalry Field. They deal with another cavalry action on July 3rd. No, I'm not talking about the Battle of Fairfield. <laughs> I'm talking about the fighting at South Cavalry ah, Field with gotcha. Justin Kilpatrick's division. I was puzzled by where this was going. Okay, I got gotcha. you. There is a method to my madness. So the first listener question we have is another what if question. But the question is what if Elon Farnsworth? was last in line instead of Custer how would their roles have been reversed which I think is kind of an interesting an interesting question, question. You know, sometimes on a battle what if we we assume you know that the people are in the right place right time well sometimes they're just in the right part of the line. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that's just kind of how it happened. What if Vincent had not been at the end of Barnes' division? You know, would it have been Schweitzer rushing up to the hill? Who knows? Um, that's kind of the fun thing with history sometimes. Yeah, but I yeah. think this is kind of an interesting question okay. with, you know, Farnsworth, another young, dynamic brigadier general, recently promoted, same okay. situation okay. as Custer. I'm with you. What are kind of our thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, and I do have thoughts on this, because I have I have actually pondered this question over over the years. So, first of all, we don't have enough of a body of work on Brigadier General Elon Farnsworth to really know how he would have behaved or performed out at East Cavalry Field. So, I'm not going to speak as much to Farnsworth. But yeah, let's say the tables are turned, and let's say Kilpatrick and Custer end up on South Cavalry Field. I certainly think, given Custer's aggressive temperament and enthusiasm, I think there is no doubt Custer would have enthusiastically led any charges against the Confederate right flank at South Cavalry Field. And the way bullets and lead were flying around out there, I think it highly probable that Custer probably would have gotten himself killed at South Cavalry Field, which then creates a domino ripple effect through history. There is no Battle of Little Bighorn I may not become interested in history. I may not write the seminal book Sickles at Gettysburg, and I may not be co-hosting the Battle of Gettysburg podcast with you. So there, my friend, are very deep and impactful, well, impacts that, that occur because Custer ended up at East Cavalry instead of South Cavalry.
0: Think about it. Without Dan Sickles and without Custer... This show is not happening right now. There is an alternate universe somewhere where this show doesn't happen. Sickles gets cashiered from the army right. before, or gets killed at Gettysburg. He never loses his leg. I never get to see that depicted at the Gettysburg Wax Museum and become enchanted by the story of Dan Sickles in the Battle of Gettysburg. Custer never does what he does, folks. Somewhere in the universe, this is happening. So let's just thank our lucky stars that it happened the way it did.
1: Clearly, there is a plan in the universe. Clearly.
0: So speaking of plan, our last listener question deals with Farnsworth's division commander, Judson Kilpatrick. Okay. And the question is, how upset was Kilpatrick that he did not have a full division with Custer staying behind? Because we kind of talked about this a little bit before that, you know, he's not Mm -hmm. part of Greg's division. He is decides to stay, but of course, it does leave Kilpatrick at a bit of a deficit.
1: Well, in South Cavalry Field is another topic that I greatly enjoy. We're gonna have to like quadruple the legal disclaimers before we can before we can do that episode. Uh, but uh, notwithstanding, yeah, I think Kilpatrick was indeed mighty upset to lose Custer. Uh, you know, he later termed it a mistake. He later tried to get Custer, as we've talked about, he tried to get Custer's brigade brought back. And I think, you know, although Kilpatrick does what he does with Merritt and Farnsworth's brigade, I think there's no doubt that when in the morning hours Kilpatrick was ordered opposite the Union left flank, he expected to have his whole division go over with them. So, you know, for lack of a better word, Kilpatrick does get kind of screwed in all of this.
0: So as we near the end of this episode, and as we like to say, put a bow on it, I think we have just a few more thoughts on the historiography of this event as it relates to the battle.
1: Yeah, we do, because I know we had a listener question about it. And again, I think Eric and I have tried to cover a lot of that during the course of the conversation. You know how East Cavalry Field uh, has been remembered and things of that nature. I would just kind of like to point out that a lot of this we saved the day at East Cavalry Field kind of thing comes as much from union participants as it does from Confederates, you know, saying we were part of Pickett's charge. And I do want to give a shout out to William Brooke Rall, who I mentioned briefly in our discussion of the third Pennsylvania. He was, he was kind of at captain William Miller's side.
0: Don't forget to see his flagpole out on well, the battlefield.
1: Exa- exactly. One of the most unique memorials on the battlefield, the little plaque to Rall on the flagpole at East Cavalry Field, but Rawl tried to make sure that Greg and Macintosh got their credit, and he was a very influential guy at speaking engagements, things of that nature. And Rawl did propose in the eighteen eighty four Cavalry Shaft Address that Stuart was protecting the left of Lee's army, but had a commanding view of the roads leading to Meade's rear, and that he was in a position to attack it simultaneously with the grand assault known as Pickett's Charge. This was his purpose, he tells us in so many words. And that was William Brooke Rawl again, trying to perpetuate the notion that this was all part of Pickett's charge now Greg who we talked about in our biography uh, he was also out here at a reunion in the 1880s Uh, he met up with Wade Hampton once again on these uh, very same battlefields but I'm just trying to point out you know this was a notion that started with the participants we're not going to go through the uh, the entire historiography on East Cavalry Field basically there isn't a lot and it's really kind of in many cases not worth mentioning but I do want to give a shout out I think I did in part one, to Mike Phipps' 1995 you Wolverines, Custer at Gettysburg. But far and away, I want to give a shout out to Eric Wittenberg's Protecting the Flanks, the battle for Brinkerhoff Ridge and East Cavalry Field. The Savas Beatty reprint that uh, Eric and Savas Beatty did in 2013 is, in my opinion, far and away the best book on this topic. And so I think if you guys really want to deep dive into this, maybe someday Jim and Eric will write a book on this topic. Who knows? But until then, I think Eric's Protecting the Flanks, Battle for Brinkerhoff Ridge and East Cavalry Field is far and away the best. And if this has whetted your appetite, go to Savas Beatty and pick up a copy.
0: And I have, one of the things I used as I prepared my notes, is a reprint of William Brooke Walls. Remembrances of this fight That was done in 1878 And I'm just going to give you The title of it It's entitled The Right Flank at Gettysburg An account of the operations Of General Gregg's Cavalry Command Showing their important bearing Upon the results of the battle So that's all you need to know Right there But it's a fun little read I mean I literally mean little I mean I look at it And it's oh 27 pages But If you ever get a chance to
1: find it, it's a fun read to have. It is, and that's a great call out. And, you know, just... Lest anybody get the impression that David M. Gregg kind of went off silently into the night, Gregg's got a 1907 published address called the 2nd Cavalry Division in the Army of the Potomac, which you can also find out there on places like Google Books. So you've got William Brooke Roll, you've got David M. Gregg, you've got James Kidd over on the Michigan side. You do have some good primary accounts out there from people who were either here or involved that, you know, you might want to pick up. And as Eric said, in many cases, it's a short read folks
0: so with that i think it's time to take this episode home Uh, before we go we want to let you know where you can find us on social media you can find us on facebook at the battle of gettysburg podcast on twitter at gettysburg pod on instagram at the battle of gettysburg podcast or you can email us at gettysburg podcast at gmail.com Once again, want to remind you, if you've not had the chance, please write us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It certainly is a big help to us, and we do appreciate it. So before we close out the episode, Jim, let's remind our listeners once again of tonight's sponsors.
1: Yeah, and again, we're going to thank Getty's Gear, as we're recording in our new podcast home at Getty's Gear, 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village, across from the Tour Center. Uh, If you can't stop in, you can email them at info at gettysgear.com of course they also have a website gettysgear.com or give them a call at 717-334-3747 they got all kinds of cool Gettysburg stuff we can't thank them enough especially during COVID for giving us this great great home which you know we're really enjoying recording at and we want to thank the licensed battlefield guide friend and colleague who has now become the fourth member of our four horsemen licensed battlefield guide rick schrader badge number 166 he has been a battlefield guide since 2016 rick is a retired orthopedic surgeon formerly from the Johnstown, PA area, and Rick's medical background is going to play heavily into what we believe is going to be our next series of recorded episodes.
0: Yeah, and I'm really excited about that to have Rick as well as our colleague Fran Fayot coming on uh, to talk really about the medical aspect of the battle, something that we have not really delved into that much so we're really excited to get some of our colleagues who are certainly experts in this matter to come on and answer some of your questions and answer some of our questions so i think it's going to be shaping up to be i think a good couple episodes we're going to do with those guys
1: yeah yeah and you know and and if for whatever reason, if medical stuff maybe is not your cup of tea, I mean, we're going to try to run the whole gamut here. We'll talk about treatment, but we're also going to try to bring in human interest stories from field hospitals and, dare I say, some of our favorite generals who, you know, may become casualties at the Battle of Gettysburg. You may even hear about a, a New York general in the Union Army who lost his leg, a story that we have not really told up until this point. A man we don't really talk about much on, on the Battle of Gettysburg. No, it, I-
0: you know, his name almost escapes me. It's Edgar something or another. I Oh,
1: well, we'll get to it in that episode. Tune in to find out next time on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast.
0: So once again, we want to thank you, our super fans, for listening. As we've often said, without you, this show would not be what it is. So as we go into a new year... Certainly, we wish you all the best in 2021, and we look forward to interacting with you for the upcoming months and upcoming years. So once again, thank you all for everything you do.